This is the ASC podcast with your moderator, Kevin Pei, Yale School of Medicine. This program brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology of the Association for Surgical Education. Embracing the mission of excellence, innovation, and scholarship, the ASC is impacting surgical education globally. Welcome to another episode of the ASE Podcast. Today we have such a special expert, uh, and I have actually two guests with me today. Um, first, Dr. Mary Klingensmith is an education luminary. You all know her very well, and we will be talking about um, the future of general surgery residency training with her. And for those of you who, are, who have not had the opportunity to read her viewpoint, the 2016 viewpoint in JAMA Surgery, we'll post a link uh, when we upload this on the website so that you can um, go and take a look at that article. It's really uh, it's really eye-opening. But I also have another special guest co-moderator with me today. Uh, she, she, Molly uh, Freeman-Weiss is our uh, general, one of our general surgery resident extraordinaires here at Yale. She was so excited to have the opportunity to chat with Dr. Klingensmith. Um, and Molly is also going to be pursuing a ed- career in education. So welcome to the both of you. Thank you. Thank you, Happy Dr. Pei. Hi. Hi, this is Molly. I'm so honored to introduce Dr. Klingensmith. So Dr. Mary Klingensmith is the current chair of the American Board of Surgery. She's a professor of surgery at Washington University in St. Louis, where she's also vice chair for education. She's a beloved teacher, a minimally invasive surgeon, and a former program director of the WashU General Surgery Residency. And if that was not enough, she's also past president of ASC and is the vice president and advisory council chair for SCORE, the Bible of Absite Prep and Surgical Education. Welcome to the ASC podcast, Dr. Klingensmith. Thank you so much, Molly. Look forward to chatting with you and Dr. Pei. Yeah, very much so. So as a resident, Dr. Klingensmith, it feels like there are a lot of changes happening with regard to general surgery training and even more coming down the pipeline. So I'm really excited to have this conversation, especially in follow-up to the grand rounds you delivered a few months ago at Yale. Um, if it's okay with you, I'd really like to dive right off the bat into early specialization. I have multiple questions, but can you just start by giving our listeners a few seconds of an update or a few sentences on the state of early specialization in general surgery training? Sure. Um, Hopefully, uh, many listeners are aware that the Early Specialization Training Program, or ESP, as it's known uh, to some people, has been in existence for uh, over a decade now, and it started in both cardiothoracic surgery and vascular surgery. And the more uh, current and up-to-date information is that an ESP-like Uh, Expansion has occurred in transplant surgery. Um, Here at my program at Washington University in St. Louis, we have a a resident who has actually gone through the general surgery phase of the ESP track and is now in his dedicated fellowship years. And I call it ESP-like because traditionally an ESP program was only in ACGME-accredited fellowship programs, and you may be aware that the transplant fellowship mm-hmm. is a non-ACGME accredited. It's accredited by their uh, specialty society. So that one is farther along, and then there's one that's uh, in the early planning stages, which is in colorectal surgery. Uh, this will be a true ESP in that it's an ACGME accredited program. The RRCs and boards of those Uh, respective uh, specialties, meaning general surgery and colorectal, are in ongoing discussions about 
how that program uh, might work. It may be slightly different from the ESP in CT and vascular, and that there are proposals uh, on the table where a trainee would be permitted to go to a different institution for the more advanced traditional sort of fellowship level work, and perhaps that would be limited to institutions that exist within a consortium of residencies and fellowship programs, but um, uh, be that as it may, that's a work in progress, and stay tuned for more information on that. I started to say, other than that, there are no other um, programs that I'm aware of that are looking at an ESP, although pediatric surgery um, has approached me just because of my interest and knowledge and even some data about all these tracks to um, just get information about it. So I think we could anticipate that even pediatric surgery may be looking at some sort of ESP-like experience in the future. So I had a question about how these sites or these programs were initially selected to be to participate in the ESP or ESP-like program? It's all by application, uh, and there is a formal application process. Um, it, you have to make an appeal to both the RRC and the board of the respective specialties. Um, in the case of the board piece of the re, uh, requirement for permission, it's actually made uh, been made much easier by a um, flexibility in surgical training option that the board began actually in 2011. So it's been in existence for a number of years now. It's a fairly simple application process. And in fact, as long as all of the requirements are met, the board has been uh, approving those uh, without delay. I think the, if anything, the harder ask at this point might be from the RRC because the RRC is very much concerned with the program impact and the impact of the program this ESP program on the other trainees, whereas the, the board is very much looking at the individuals. And if an individual will be meeting requirements, the approval is given. That's wonderful. So if a resident wanted to pursue an ESP in an existing pathway like cardiothoracic surgery at a program that didn't currently have that, um, what year and when would they have to start the conversation with the board and the um, and the people who decide that they're allowed to enter the ESP. Yeah, so obviously the resident, him or herself, can't actually you know, start that conversation. It would have to be by the program and fellowship director. Here at WashU, because we have an existing track, our residents have to identify themselves by sometime in their clinical third year because their clinical fourth year is a modified year. So uh, I guess if you were starting a program from scratch, so to speak, uh, knowing as early as you might would be best. Uh, so even as early as, say, late in the intern year, or for sure by the second year, so that the permissions could be obtained from the relevant uh, groups. One thing that's important to note from the trainee perspective is that as a trainee, you have to meet all of your requirements for board eligibility in general surgery in a reduced amount of time because what you're doing is giving up 12 months or so of your senior residency to this other specialty. So that means you have 12 fewer months than your peers to get all of your required cases, do all of your required um, you know, pieces of um, work that you need to for board eligibility, so your FLS certification, your FEC certification, all of that stuff has to be done in less time, and you have to show evidence that all that will be completed by the time you transition to these fellowship level rotations. So 
it does require a lot of pre-planning, uh, and in some places I know even sort of a customized schedule for a third-year resident so that resident can meet those requirements in advance of that fourth year. So that's actually a great uh, transition into this concept that you mentioned in the article about core training or core content. Is the traditional five-year core content, if that were to be considered all core content, is the board going to change what that core content is, or is it just like you were discussing previously, it's going to be the same, same exact requirements, but just a shorter amount of time where in, in which you can complete them? So let me be clear that, that um, what I'm saying on all of this uh, podcast today is really uh, my opinion and my interpretation of board information. This by no means represents the board viewpoint on things. So with that caveat, I will say that the discussions right now at the board with regard to restructuring training are more towards a restructuring around a competency-based advancement in the junior residency. You may be aware that there's an early um it, uh, EPA or Entrustable Professional Activities, EPA-like uh, competency advancement project pilot that has just launched as of uh, this summer, uh, summer of 2018. Uh, and the board will be um, looking at the implementation of five EPAs uh, for essentially sort of junior to mid-level resident uh, competency advancement. So that's just a toe in the water as far as a restructuring goes, and it's not a restructuring around um, some number of years plus. There was a lot of discussion uh, in the past, say, five years um, by the board, the RRC, and the Program Directors Association regarding whether we should move to a core plus, so a three plus three paradigm or a four plus two paradigm or something like that. Those discussions have really... Uh, been diminished more recently, those time-based discussions, and instead moving more towards a competency-based advancement discussion. And until we have more information from that pilot as to whether we know that an individual could achieve competency in, say, fewer years than is current, I don't know that we can even really talk about a number of years. I know that's okay. a long-winded answer to your question, Kevin, but um, I think at this point, all I could say is that um, the current pathway uh, to allow an individual to specialize earlier is really just through the board's flexibility and surgical training pathway, which really mm -hmm. specifies that you're allowed to spend as many as 12 months of your entire 60 required in residency um, doing something that would count towards your fellowship as long as you are otherwise meeting all your requirements for certification in surgery. So uh, along the same lines, um, more of an opinion question, I think some residents go into general surgery knowing that they want to be a trauma surgeon, a colorectal surgeon, or a transplant surgeon, you know, very specifically, while others really enter the field knowing just that they want to be a surgeon of some sort. For the less differentiated junior residents who are really enjoying their junior residency, but largely doing floor work or smaller cases, can you advise on kind of the introspection it might take and experiential, um, like learning that it'll take to realize what specialty you might want to go into? Yeah, that's a great question. And I have to tell you that one of my fears about these um, pathways to specialization is that we are forcing 
residents and, quite frankly, even medical students to make decisions about their future uh, before they're really ready. Um, yep. As you said, Molly, there are a number of residents who come in as interns certain that they want to be a whatever surgeon, fill in the blank. Um, but data that I have come across in the past says that only 20% of those people actually stick to that decision and realize mm -hmm. that that means that the vast majority of people are changing their minds. So uh, for the person who knows what they want to do, they actually may not really know what they want to do. Then they may, through experiences, um, you know, take a detour to something else. Um, the other is the situation you mentioned. It's the person who feels really undifferentiated. My best advice for both of those groups is to keep an open mind. Every rotation that you start, keep an open mind about th whether this might be the specialty that you would undertake and, and try to spend some time getting to know your attendings, go to clinic with them, ask them questions about what they most enjoy or least enjoy about the work that they get to do. Um, try to inhabit their lives to the extent that you're able in the rotation time that you have with them to really know and understand whether that patient population, that case mix, um, uh, even sort of the arc of care that you're involved in are, are the sorts of things that, that you could see yourself doing. The happiest situation for me as a person who mentors and tries to guide residents is when a, a resident comes in and says they have many things they're trying to decide among. And I, I like that they've really kept an open mind and can see themselves happy in a lot of different environments. Uh, it's harder when an individual has been relatively closed-minded about it and sort of rules things out rather than trying to rule things in. So I would just suggest you look at it as the, the glass is half full, not empty, uh, and try to really uh, try it on and, and see whether indeed it would be something that you could imagine doing for the next several decades. If we're if we're blessed, we will work into our 60s and 70s, and so that means you know four decades of uh, work in a single field. I think that's really great advice. Thank you so much. And for the resident who you mentioned, kind of last, the one who keeps an open mind and has you know several things that he or she's interested in, when do you really think that they need to narrow down to to the single field that they're going to pursue? And do you think that this is going to come earlier and earlier in the future, given early specialization? Well, I will say, I think it will depend largely on the residency itself. Uh, in my residency program, uh, we have an opportunity for professional enrichment or lab years, uh, as it's also known. Uh, we typically have our residents take that experience between years two and three, although some take it between years three and four. Uh, if you are certain of a field, you want that enrichment time to somehow prepare you to be a better both competitive candidate for that field, but more importantly, just to further explore the questions of that field and solidify for yourself that decision. In fact, I've had some residents who've gone out for their uh, lab years who realize in their lab years that the thing they thought they really wanted to do now that they've had a chance to uh, delve a little deeper into it actually is not what they want to do, and they make a detour after their lab years into a different uh, subspecialty of surgery altogether. So um, I think ideally having that decision made before you step out, if you do get that opportunity to step out, 
would be would be good, knowing that there is still a chance to change your mind. Short of that, yeah, if you, you don't so plan to do any of that professional development, for sure, knowing the timeline for your um, fellowship match would be critically important so that you can be assembling a competitive application and a sort of a narrative that explains why it is that you really want to pursue such and such specialty uh, for your practice. Thank you. I think that makes a lot of sense. And to piggyback off that question, I just to clarify also both for me as well as the audience, for those residents that have not decided that, or or have not decided by the time that they can take advantage of early specialization, will the traditional, you know, f- sort of finish up your general surgery five years and then go on to two-year fellowship, is, that model will still exist? I think most certainly that model will still exist. So um, I've been fortunate to have an opportunity to summarize the data, at least for CT and vascular surgery, and that was published in JAX a couple of years ago. Um, and from that, there's of the now 300 residency programs, did you know we've now passed the, I think it's actually 301 uh, accredited general surgery programs now. Of that number of programs, it is a tiny fraction, like 10%, 10 to 15% offer an ESP opportunity. So the vast majority of programs don't have that as an option for trainees. And further, the fellowships that are piggybacked onto those programs are also not participating in an ESP track. So that means there are many fellowship programs that need to receive people from a traditional two-year general surgery residency program. Sure, Will this sure. pr- proliferate in the program in the in the future? And could we see uh, a future where um, there's maybe say half the fellowships are tied to ESP tracks? Yeah, maybe. But uh, I think that's probably a few generations of residents away, to be quite honest, meaning a couple of uh, five-year cohorts of residents will have to have moved through the ranks before we're seeing that big a proliferation. That's my guess. Sure. No, that that makes sense. I wanted to uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about this well-recognized shortage of general surgeons across the country. And you had, you've written about this also, is that you know, a couple of generations from now, we're going to have a real critical shortage of general surgeons. And recognizing you don't speak for the board, I, I'm interested in your own opinion about how does one conceptually balance this conflict that I see between encouraging early specialization or making early specialization easy versus addressing the concern of a critical shortage of general surgeons in the country? Yeah, so so here's the irony of my life. Uh, I um, love to sort of study these early specialization tracks. I've been a proponent of sort of uh, helping to make them accessible. That flexibility and surgical training option. I was uh, when I was uh, part of those discussions for the board. I was really keen to to make that uh, possible and easy and disseminating that to programs. And the flip side to that is that I myself am a general surgeon in a tertiary and quaternary uh, academic medical center. Uh, I try really hard to uh, represent uh, general surgery to my trainees. And that comes from a very personal experience, which was that I grew up in southern West Virginia, uh, the daughter of a general surgeon. Uh, I had an opportunity to see what my father's practice was, and especially what it meant to the community I grew up in. 
Uh, and as my parents have aged and have stayed in place, I've also seen what the absence of a general surgeon means to a county hospital in a small uh, a rural environment. Uh, and yep. I feel very strongly that we need to continue to train well-trained individuals who can manage the breadth of conditions that come through the ER and into a surgeon's office. Uh, and right. so I have this sort of internal conflict about the fact that I, from personal experience, know the value of uh, a general surgeon, and yet here I am, a proponent of these uh short tracking and early specialization pathways. So I think there needs to be a sweet spot somewhere. Um, there's yeah. a, a solution to this potentially is to, uh, if you will, elevate general surgery to the level of its own specialty and sort of celebrate it as its own specialty. Let other specialties peel off uh, and spend less time, say, in the belly. Let the chest surgeons spend their time in the chest. Let the belly surgeons spend their time in the belly. Uh, and and figure out ways that through training we can emphasize for those who do desire a general surgery practice that broad breadth of exposure that is necessary to take you know, a, a true general surgery practice in an environment where you may not have all of the resources that um, exist in the more urban environments. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I really appreciate you sharing that because, especially coming from a leader like you, um, um, I don't feel like the general surgeons in the country should, um, especially academic centers, should apologize for. You know, you hear this comment, "Oh, I'm just a general surgeon," and I, and I'm big on saying, "Drop the just." We should be really proud that we're general surgeons. Um, so Absolutely. it's really impactful. Yeah, it's really impactful and powerful for you to share that um, as a chair of ABS. I think that's, I mean, not not that you're representing their opinion, but. Yes, and I will assure you, while I, I put that disclaimer that I don't represent the ABS, I think I want the listeners to know that of the 36 directors of the ABS, this is a constant drumbeat. Even those super specialists who have an opportunity to serve the board understand the importance of general surgery to our public and right. it really is uh, an issue that we need our patients to be best served and in the environments in which they live, which largely are rural. This is a vast country. Yep. There are a lot of hospitals that really need general surgeons. They don't need, no offense, but another HPB surgeon or whatever uh, specialist <laughs> uh, that might be. So Right. Thank you. And I think you, you wrote really beautifully about that in your viewpoint in the Gemma Surgery article. But in the setting or in the in the not-so-distant future where general surgery is its own fellowship and part of sort of early specialization, um, a little bit different than how it is now with the mastery in surgery uh, year, will the general surgery specialty be different from trauma and acute care surgery, people who go into that as a as a fellowship? So the short answer is yes. Uh, how different is it? Uh, I think there will be a time of transition where they will look somewhat similar. Uh, as I see it, though, the acute care trauma surgeon practices in an urban environment. The person who truly assumes a practice in a, a, as an acute care or trauma surgeon is doing so in a group where they're is a critical mass of those individuals so that they have sort of a both a group practice and a, and a coverage and therefore a, a large volume of patients that 
allows for such a practice. Uh, a lot of the skills that those individuals must possess to do that work are absolutely the skills that a general surgeon knows and has. Uh, but I think the general surgeon also needs to be able to take care of the elective breast cancer patient or the elective patient with um, IBD or uh, you know the routine straightforward stuff as well as uh, the urgent uh, issues that the acute care surgeon sees, like the perforated ulcer or the necrotizing soft tissue infection. So it's partly um, a practice location difference, uh, and I think emphasizing for that person who wants to be a general surgeon uh, almost some of the sort of tips and tools of the trade as, as to how to manage some of these things in these lower resource settings. So in the smaller, uh, more rural or critical access hospital where there isn't access to all of the wound adjuncts that we enjoy in the very urban environments as a small example. But things like right. that would be emphasized. I also know that uh, from some board data that looks at what sorts of cases are done by surgeons according to where they live. So by zip code and uh, density, population density maps, the board has some information about uh, what is being done by surgeons in practice, and it and it turns out that those that you might call quote true general surgeons by basis of where they live, their uh, amount of endoscopy that they perform is really astoundingly high. But when you think yep. about it, it's because there's probably not a gastroenterologist in that community. Uh, there's not enough you know population to sort of feed a gastroenterologist, but there is to feed a general surgeon who can also do diagnostic and therapeutic endoscopy. So making sure that we turn out graduates who are very facile in their endoscopy skills will be part of this process. I've always wondered about and a little bit concerned about this concept of prestige, if you will. And, you know, having practice in a tertiary teaching hospital, um, it, there's, this, there's this sort of unspoken undertone of specialization as a more prestigious um, career path to pursue. So, in this in this concept of this um, viewpoint that you wrote about this core curriculum and this core experience that you have to have, do we no longer call that general surgery? And then that that's how general surgery becomes its own specialty. You know, because otherwise it seems confusing for somebody to say, "Well, I'm I'm going to go into a general surgery residency, uh, but I'm also going to specialize in general surgery." Uh, yes, so I think actually we would call that core surgery or just surgery residency. And from surgery residency, I go into general surgery or transplant surgery or pediatric surgery. That would be the the, the nomenclature uh, resolution of that. Um, to address your other point, though, about this prestige, I think one of the problems um, that that Kevin, you and I probably suffer is that we're now in these, you know, tertiary quaternary academic medical centers where we're surrounded by specialists. Yep. Uh, I think it's important to recall that again, the vast majority of residency programs are not academic. Uh, you know, it's roughly two thirds uh, independent or community-based programs versus one third academic. So the majority of our resident trainees are training in institutions where they have general surgery role models. And I, I think right. we need to elevate general surgery. Um, I think we also need to make sure that our trainees, both at Yale and WashU, have an opportunity to rotate 
in community settings where they're being exposed to these general surgeons. And just as I said earlier about an opportunity to sort of try on various specialties as you go on rotation, having an opportunity to rotate with a community surgeon actually is a predictor of a trainee choosing general surgery as a career path. And so that might be one of the solutions to the workforce shortage in general surgery is getting our trainees more exposure to these practice environments so that a, a trainee can really try that on and see if being a general surgeon is what they would like to do. I think my trainees here at WashU really don't know what a true general surgeon is. They've never really right. seen one. People of my sort of generation that did not do a fellowship, but you're absolutely right. And I have to uh, identify myself by that. Even though I call myself a general surgeon, the truth is structurally in my own institution, I'm grouped with the military surgeons because I do a lot of minimally invasive techniques. Uh, it is a funny sort of identity thing, at least here in the more academic centers. So Dr. Smith, to switch topics a little bit, something that I'm personally very interested in, I think as, you know, general surgery, residency changes and education changes, um, we know that like operative and clinical experience is definitely the most important in terms of training. However, every program does have their protected time. What do you believe, or, you know, just an opinion on on things that you've seen, is the optimal amount of protected time, and what do you think the content of those hours would be? Like, do you think there's a role for didactics during that, or do you think it's um, best to do, like, simulation during protective time? So uh, this is a great question, and I would submit to you that it needs to be um, a lot of all of those things that you mentioned. There's only a small portion of the week uh, that we devote to these uh, learning experiences for the residents, sort of the traditional sort of classroom didactics. Um, My personal feeling is that we need to absolutely preserve and carve out that time, whether it's three or four hours a week. Some places are doing as much as a half day per week. Um, And I believe that the residents really need to be uh, spending some time in advance of that, doing some of the, what for us in the day was an actual paper textbook reading. Nowadays, it's all virtual and online learning. But doing some of that prep work ahead of time so that they come to the classroom Uh, And instead of me as the uh, lecturer that day throwing up a PowerPoint and turning down the light so that everyone goes to sleep and me trying to especially sort of data dump or spoon feed information, I think if the residents have been able to do that sort of pre-reading and preparation, we all come together and in manageable sized groups, we have an interactive discussion of the points of controversy or the high-yield facts or however I, as the facilitator of that discussion, would like to lead it. But mm-hmm. I really believe that um, it's almost that sort of flipped classroom idea that you uh, may have heard about from sort of the medical student level. We really need to figure out ways to make that time that we are face-to-face with the residents as valuable as possible. And part of that means the resident has to have done some of the work before they even come to the classroom. I do believe because there is so much to learn in the breadth of surgery, we still need that sort of face-to-face, sort of a modified didactic setting. I do also believe that simulation is a very powerful adjunct. I think it's much more useful and important for more junior residents. 
Um, I think it would be inexcusable these days for a resident to show up to a case being unable to do a subcuticular closure or throw square knots or even uh, have basic laparoscopic skills and be able to fire a, a stapler. All that they need to have learned in a simulated setting. Um, there's even evidence that having had simulation training in teamwork and trauma resuscitation uh, results in better care for patients. So I, I think using simulation for those sorts of experiences is valuable. A lot of programs are still doing whole uh, procedure simulations, so cholecystectomy on um, explanted, say, pig livers with the gallbladder attached or things like that. I think those are very valuable to sort of solidify the steps of a procedure for the more junior resident. I must admit, um, here at my program, we've had the full breadth of experiences from all those things I've just described, actually all the way through uh, laparoscopic colectomy for the more senior resident. And I'm a little skeptical as to whether that's the best use mm -hmm. of a senior resident's time. I think uh, once those basic skills are, are learned and the conduct of the operation is understood, actually doing the real operation um, is probably the best use of that individual's time. I really like what you had to say about kind of modified didactic curriculum because I think residents are somewhere between, you know, a classic classroom learner and an adult learner that really needs to optimize how they're how they're being educated. And I like um, how you describe sort of a graded curriculum by PGY level almost in terms of uh, simulation. I think that is really, really uh, a very smart answer. Um, my follow-up question, similarly, uh, in terms of surgical education for residents, I know that you have a lot of experience with the SCORE curriculum. So for a new PGY-1 resident who hasn't yet taken the app site, or maybe for a PGY-3 or 4 who kind of wants to revamp how they prepare for the app site, how do you suggest they can most efficiently um, optimize the SCORE curriculum, and how do you suggest they use that on a daily or weekly base, basis for a, 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 a busy surgical resident? Yeah, so the, the most important um way to be well prepared for the app site is to make it a daily uh, exercise. Literally, maybe you take a couple days off the app site, but the remaining 360 days uh, need to be essentially in preparing yourself. And, and instead of looking at it as pre preparing for the app site, uh, really mastering the body of knowledge that you have only five years to master so that you are a safe and proficient surgeon upon uh, getting your board certification out of the way and actually being um, in your practice. That said, uh, there are a lot of ways to get through the SCORE curriculum in particular. Um, there's a feature that we at SCORE released, I guess, three years ago now called This Week in SCORE. It's a default sequence of all the material that's on SCORE. It's sequenced in a two-year cycle. So uh, that any resident over a five-year categorical residency will see all of the material at least twice. Um, and so on a weekly basis, if you go into that area on SCORE, if you're a subscriber, you see a, a topic of the week. It might be a benign biliary disease, for instance, and there would be a collection of several different modules that you could step through. Obviously, you won't be able to get through all of those in a given week because it's too voluminous, but you need to remember that you'll encounter this again in two years. 
So choosing two or three of those topics to read through, uh, there's a, a quiz that comes with each of those weekly topics, a high-yield 10-question quiz. Uh, those are carefully crafted questions that have very uh, thoughtful and informative uh, explanations and even references attached to those questions. So using that quiz to sort of guide some of your learning uh, is very helpful. And then once you're in the actual modules themselves, so within SCORE, all of the material is delivered in these little chunks of material called modules. So if you're reading about, um, let's say, lapros or, uh, cholecystectomy uh, as a procedural module, uh, there are conference discussion questions listed with those. And those are meant to be these open-ended questions that allow you to sort of test your knowledge. So once you've read through the learning objectives, perhaps even taken a deeper dive and read into some of the textbooks about some of the material if you're not as familiar with those, coming back to those conference prep questions and seeing if you can answer those is a great way to just test your knowledge uh, and keep yourself moving. Um, yeah. Being disciplined about your learning is difficult, especially when you're a busy intern, but critically important. Yeah, great, great advice. It was. I remember. Um, I remember being an intern and um, setting to myself, "I'm going to put a calendar together and and do this and this and this and this." And and um, and clinical work always got in the way. And then as I got more senior and more senior in residency, I realized as the momentum starts building when you actually set yourself down and become disciplined, it actually becomes even easier to be disciplined. So it's sort of like that yeah, that first hurdle. For sure. So. But sure. but to speak actually since we're we're on the topic of assessment a little bit here um, in this case about knowledge um, base I think for the audience it's important to go back to something that you had mentioned earlier which is this concept of entrustable professional activities and uh, collectively moving towards a more competency based training model so maybe you can share with the audience how how do you envision that playing out in the next you know five ten years. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned briefly, the um, American Board of Surgery has been the convener in this EPA pilot. So um, the RRC, the ACGME, the American College of Surgeons, and the Program Directors in Surgery, the APDS, uh, have all come together to design this pilot. Um, it's been informed by the experience of pediatrics, uh, not pediatric surgery, but pediatrics uh, in the U.S. ACGME accredited pediatrics programs have been in an EPA pilot themselves as a specialty for a couple of years. And so we borrowed some of their expertise, um, consulted with individuals in both Canada and the Netherlands. Both of those countries use competency-based advancement uh, arranged around EPAs, although they call them something slightly different in Canada. Um, but the idea is that there are defined units of work um, such as managing a patient with an inguinal hernia from presentation through post-op care, um, that these units of work would be uh, able to be individually assessed uh, of a learner in terms of their ability to do the various phases of care, so pre-op, inter-op, and post-op care, uh, mm -hmm. and that there would be multiple uh, frequent sort of mini assessments of an individual as they're encountering a patient with a hernia as that current example. And so perhaps I've been uh, in clinic seeing a, a pre-op patient with a hernia. At the end of that clinic, I might ask you as my supervising attending to just do a quick evaluation of my abilities to do that evaluation. 
having things that are sort of smartphone accessible in terms of the assessment forms themselves. Um, and, and all of that would be tracked and become this sort of portfolio of work for an individual over the course of, say, a PGY year or some defined unit of time. And so that's what this pilot that the board is uh, leading right now is about. It's collecting data from 28 residency programs that are piloting five individual uh, EPAs right now. Five are the uh, only ones that we've selected now for our specialty of surgery. Um, really just to do sort of proof of concept, uh, figure out what works, what doesn't work, uh, and then these will be compared to the milestone evaluations for the same residents in a contemporary time frame uh, to see if we can make any comparisons about individuals' progression uh, using this method. You asked what this means, say, for five to ten years from now. What I envision is that uh, the pilot that has started July of 2018 and is due to conclude in June of 2020, so it's a two-year pilot, uh, mm -hmm. that there will be information from that that we as a specialty can take to determine uh, when and where we're ready to expand these these pilots, uh, meaning both to more programs but also to more conditions and um, operations that our residents are encountering, and how we okay. could use this assessment information for progression. So. A lot yet to come. I do think the sort of the arc on this project is probably on the order of 10 years before we have this whole thing figured out and we sure. are moving our specialty towards a competency-based advancement. But that's that's the horizon I see. To me, one of the obvious questions becomes, and I know it's very early on, but since we're moving away from time-based training, what if a trainee at the end of some period of a time of assessment is not competent. I mean, is there some, do you feel like there's going to be remediation and then say you can take as long as you want, as long as you end up at this point of um, EPAs, then you can be a surgeon. It doesn't really matter if it takes 10 years versus somebody who takes five. No, I don't think, uh, well, so first of all, unfortunately, there will always be uh, trainees who are best served moving to a different specialty, let's just put it that way. Uh, I don't think everyone yeah, is sure. meant to be a surgeon who matches into to general surgery training. Agreed. The majority do, uh, deserve to be and are meant to be, no question. Uh, I think what this will do for our specialty and for trainees is give all of us a floor to work to. Uh, right now, what we're seeing is that there's big heterogeneity in the product of general surgery uh, graduates and uh, right. This is evidenced by their performance on their certification exams. But trying to uh, get more homogeneity in the product is what I think we can see through this EPA project. We're going to now um, give everyone a really clear understanding of what they must be able to do to be deemed competent right now. Sure. That's really loosey-goosey. And so yeah. if we can delineate that, spell that out for everybody, both for the learners but also for us as the evaluators, what does competence look like? Uh, I think actually the hope is that the vast majority of residents will meet this competence level. Some of them will do it in fewer years than we currently require. Some will probably take the same amount of time. But I don't see a future where we say, yeah, if it takes you 10 years, keep at it. Uh, yeah. At some point, there would need to be, you know, some sort of cutoff. 
uh, where yeah. we say, okay, you've had you know multiple attempts, and this is not something you're a- able to achieve competency in, so we'll need to help you transition to another field. We have we both have so many more questions for you, but we we should wrap up because I know you have many other things that you have to get to. Um, but I wanted to give Molly um, the opportunity to ask you the last question. Thank you, Dr. Pei. So, Dr. Klingsmith, for the last question, only because it would be just such a waste to not ask for advice while talking to really the pinnacle of surgical education and leadership. Can you give any advice on how you pursued a career really, really rooted in education? And do you have any leadership or teaching styles that you find to be the most productive for this pathway? Oh, good question. Um, So, my personal pathway uh, was one that uh, started with a a personal uh, potential bad turn, which was that I uh, suffered an orthopedic injury a month before I was to start my first academic job, which was here at WashU. Uh, I arrived at uh, St. Louis uh, unable to stand in the OR because of a really bad knee injury. Um, I came here intending to start a skills lab, uh, which back then in the uh, late 90s, believe it or not, was still a, a thing and was uh, very novel. Um, so luckily, from crutches, I was able to still do that. Um, and similarly, <laughs> because I uh, uh, expressed some proclivity to that, I was pegged as program director a few months later. So here I was, uh, a, a brand-new <laughs> non-operative surgeon who sort of became anointed as the educator. I I like to to joke that it was the the fortunate uh, injury because I think it probably did change the trajectory of my career. Uh, It it forced me to really uh, be productive in an academic way. And and luckily, by about three or four months after I had uh, started my job, I was recovered and able to become an operative surgeon. But, But from those early months where I really had time to sort of think about and set up what I wanted to do, um, it, it was productive. The other key ingredient for me was that I had a boss, uh, a chairman who remains my current chair, who told me that he wanted me to uh, blaze a path in education. He wanted uh, essentially the education opportunities of our department to be my laboratory and that I should really try to to turn this into scholarly work and study it in a way that would be meaningful. And that was exactly what I needed someone to tell me. So my advice would be, um, especially those who are trying to to carve a pathway in an academic setting, is to obviously you have to uh, administer programs, as I did as a residency program director, that that meet all the requirements, but also think about ways in which you can get some scholarship, if you will, out of that. Uh, And one of the other key things that I did early in my training was participate in the ASE SURF program, the uh, Surgical Education Research Fellowship. Uh, It was incredibly valuable to me to um, both learn the skills that I did, but more importantly, to meet a community of like-minded people. There weren't other people at my institution who were trying to do um, surgical education in a scholarly way. And I really needed to have that network of people that really opened my eyes to the possibilities. It's it's much more common now to have uh, individuals who have masters of education and things. It was incredibly rare then, um, and so to to meet those people and to learn those skills was incredibly helpful. 
I think the other well, thing you asked, Dr. Friedman Weiss, was what what sort of uh, teaching style or personality is needed for this. I guess the only thing I would say is uh, most teachers that I've known uh, have an ability to uh, stay open-minded, to learn as much from their learners as they're uh, trying to transmit. And so short of that, uh, an ability to, to be organized and, and stick with the rules and regulations of the education uh, process that you're asked to lead, uh, I think those would be the most valuable assets. Yeah, and thank you for uh, trailblazing for us, for those of us uh, who are coming behind you as educators. Um, it's it's really um, such an amazing career option now where one may have never thought about it as a career option. Time for us to wrap up, and I really wanted to thank our special guest, Dr. Klingen-Smith, as well as uh, Molly uh, for joining us as a co-moderator. Um, what a special um, podcast on the future of general, res- general surgery residency. It's really exciting. I can't wait to see what happens in the next five to 10 years. Um, and audience members, please stay tuned for our next podcast. And don't forget to subscribe. On, we're on iTunes now. And you can find the link on our website at surgicaleducation.com. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much. And that wraps up another edition of the AIC podcast brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology, the Association for Surgical Education. You can check out many great resources on the ASE website at www.surgicaleducation.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast series where we discuss pressing issues in surgical education. We invite you to join ASE and get involved and wish you success in your pursuit of surgical education excellence.